Well, if you've got a Bible, uh, do me a favor and turn in it to the book of 1 Peter. We'll be in chapter 1, once again, in verses 13 through to 20, I'm sorry, uh, verses 17 through to 21. Mark was in 13 last week. And let me just remind you again and and thank you once again. Uh, For those of you who have supported us in the work of ministry during this season, and and I would just invite you if you'd like to continue to partner with us as a church in the work of ministry that we're doing, that we've made giving really easy. There's a number of ways that you can do that online. And so with that being said, we come now to the book of 1 Peter. We as a church have been walking through a series on what matters most. I don't, I don't know about you, but, but I've had so many conversations with friends, uh, many friends who are, who are not even particularly interested in Christianity, who have been re-evaluating life and meaning and purpose in the midst of this current pandemic, the season that we find ourselves in. And it's with that in mind that we as a church have been asking the question that many people, Christian or not, are asking, what really does matter? When, when we feel like everything is up for grabs, what are the things that are most important? And we've been allowing First Peter to guide our investigation. We've been looking at it through the lens of the Apostle Peter's letter to the churches in Asia Minor. And what we know about the recipients of this letter is that they were a group of Christians in a a cluster of cities that were spread about as as wide as the state of California. But all of them were experiencing something similar. They, They were experiencing the isolation and the persecution and the loneliness that had come as they had become believers. Many of them had grown up in the cities in which they found themselves. They'd grown up in the culture in which they still lived. But when they had become Christians, their values and their beliefs and their culture changed. And so they found themselves out of step. They found themselves out of step with the families they grew up in. The culture that was once their home no longer felt like home. This is why Peter refers to his readers as elect exiles, not because they've been driven out of their home country, but because their native culture now feels like a foreign nation since they've become Christians. And so Peter writes with the intention of of helping these believers unpack how the gospel shapes every facet of their life, in particular in the midst of this isolation that they're feeling. He writes to to encourage these believers in Asia Minor and and to show them the ways that the good news of what God has done in Christ forms and informs their daily lives and how it shows them what is most important as they interact with their friends and their neighbors. Over the last couple weeks, Mark's been unpacking sort of verse by verse some of the things that Peter emphasizes. He talked about the way that the gospel should inform our joy that joy really matters, that the gospel makes us a joyful people, just as it did for Peter's original readers. And last week we were on verse 13, and we talked about the way that the gospel caused us to set our hope, to be steadfast in hope. This morning, or evening, depending on which service you're watching, I want to talk about how the gospel should produce in us not just joy, not just hope, but fear. 
And, and that may not seem like it follows in the, the sequence of things we've been talking about. You've got joy and you've got hope and those pair pretty well together. But fear doesn't seem to fit. And yet that's exactly what Peter talks about in this next portion of scripture. And so I wanna unpack that together and see what, what Peter means and how it can inform us today in our present moment. So once again, if you've got a Bible, do me a favor, turn in it to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 to 21. And let me just read our passage of scripture for us. It says this, And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Our, our passage today picks up a, a few verses after where Mark left off in verse 13. After encouraging his, his readers to be steadfast in their hope, in verse 13, Peter tells his readers that, that they also need to be committed to holiness. Just like the God who called us is holy, we too must be holy. We must lead holy lives that show to the world the character of the God that has called us and saved us and redeemed us. And the language that Peter uses in the verses that we've kind of glossed over since last week is, is specifically this. He says, live as obedient children knowing that the one who called you is holy. And then we get to our passage for today where he says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially, conduct yourselves with fear. Now, I wonder if you've, you've noticed a, a common theme in, in the portions of scripture we've just been talking about. There's this consistent family language that Peter uses. Live as obedient children. You're calling on God as father. And this is consistent with the rest of what we see in the New Testament. Again and again and again, our salvation is talked about as entering into a new family. This is why the author of Hebrews describes Jesus as both our elder brother and our example. This is why Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, when he teaches us how to pray, tells us that we call on God as our father. This is why Paul in Ephesians says that in Christ we have been adopted. This is why John says that in order to be saved, you have to be born again. Again and again, the Bible talks about the Christian life as learning to live in a new family. As learning to live in this new community, in step with this new divine family that God has brought us into by grace. A couple years ago, in 2018, in November, I had the opportunity to live in Scotland for a month with some friends of mine. And at that point, I was single, and I had lived on my own for about five or six years with, with no roommates. And there was something of a culture shock that took place. I moved in with my friends Pete and Lindsay, 
And Pete and Lindsay have been married for uh, a couple years. They have three kids, or they had three kids. They now have four. And they also had a missionary from Dallas, Texas, living in their guest room. So I moved into their attic for four weeks. And in stepping into this new family, there was a pretty significant learning curve. This is the first time I, I technically had roommates in six or seven years since I'd lived with my parents. I was used to waking up to my alarm clock at 7.30 or 8. I was not used to waking up to the sound of screaming kids fighting. I was used to, to waking up and setting my coffee maker to go and hopping in the shower. I was not used to the coffee all being consumed by the rest of the house and waiting in line for the shower. On and on and on. There, there were things that I was not used to as I sort of stepped into this family for just a brief season of life. And yet eventually, I started to get used to those routines. I started to get used to this family's rhythms. And eventually, over time, I began to adapt to life in this new family. Actually, by, by the end of my time in Scotland, uh, I preached a sermon at Pete's church in Glasgow, and there's a recording of it online that I go back and listen to because I'd even started to develop like a slight accent. I'd started to talk like this new family that I was spending my life in, and I started to sound sort of like this hodgepodge of Irish and Scottish. Eventually, being brought into this new family began to change who I was. And when the Bible talks about salvation as being born again, it's talking about us being brought into the family of God. And bay life, that should change us. It should reshape us. It should refashion us. It should make us different. We should pick up a new accent and new habits and new customs. Peter says we live as obedient children and we call on God as father. But then he says something that I'm sure kind of took us aback. He says that if we call on God as father, we should live in reverent fear throughout the time of our exile because our father judges impartially. Now, if you're reading from the ESV translation, it'll just say live in fear or conduct yourself with fear. If you're reading from the NIV or the King James Version, it'll, it'll say reverent fear. But nonetheless, that word fear is present. That we call on God as our Father and yet we hold this intention with this reverent fear. And I'm sure in hearing that, there's maybe two directions that our minds go. There, there are some of us who, when we hear that we should fear God, think back to our fundamentalist upbringing. Maybe you grew up in one of these churches that was angry and, and sort of brimstone and hellfire in its disposition. And you grew up with this almost fear that at any moment God could strike you down. Maybe you stubbed your toe and let, and let a, a curse word slip. Or maybe you watched a rated R movie. There was this fear that haunted you that at any given moment, the lightning bolts could come. And so you hear this phrase that we should live in fear of God and you think that what that means is this terror, this, this dread that, that permeates your spiritual life. And there's, there's a sense in which this branch of Christianity, this strain of Christianity, it captures what Peter says that, that God is an impartial judge. But it misses what Peter says, which is that we call on God as our Father. It recognizes his justice, 
but it misses his fatherhood. And then on the other hand, there are those of us who recoil at this idea of fearing God, not because we have this traumatic fundamentalist upbringing, but we recoil at this thought because we can't conceive of God as a judge at all. We have this buddy Jesus mentality. And I actually think that this is probably more common now. There are an awful lot of people who are happy to call God Father, but they use that fatherhood as leverage. They think that means that they can do whatever they want, and they lose God as judge. I was having a conversation with my wife a, a couple weeks ago, and she, she mentioned that in elementary school, she had this classmate whose dad was the principal. And even though uh, this particular guy in elementary school was, was a friend of hers, she recognized that this particular student knew that they could get away with pretty much anything because of who their dad was. And so he would be rude to his classmates and he would take toys that were not offered to him because he knew that the teachers would be afraid to punish him because the teachers would get in trouble. And if he was disrespectful to the teachers, he knew that they wouldn't really do much about it because his dad held the keys to their salary. It kind of sounds like a supervillain from a kid's movie in a lot of ways. The spoiled rich kid who thinks they can get away with anything. And yet, I am shocked at how many Christians live like this, even if they wouldn't root for this sort of person in a movie that they'd watch. We think that because God is our father, his commandments don't really apply to us. We think sin doesn't matter. We think holiness isn't important. We think righteousness is an afterthought. And we err on the opposite side of that first view that only sees God as a judge and not as a father. We go to the opposite side and we see him only as a father, but not as an impartial judge. Both of these are problems. Both of these perspectives take what the Bible puts together and tries to tear it apart. Peter says we call on him as father, but we live with awe and reverence. And this holy fear, not dread, but this awe. Because God is our father and he is our judge. And this should cause us to walk in reverence and in holiness and in obedience. Karen Job is a New Testament scholar, and when she, she comments on this passage, she, she says it like this, the intimate relationship between the believer in Christ and God as Father does not give license to the Christian to live as he or she wishes. God as our Father is not a get-out-of-jail-free card that lets us do whatever we want. And God as our judge is not this looming terror that should rob us of our joy. Both of these things are united in the Bible. We have to live with them united in our lives. But this adoption that's taken place so that we can cry out to God as our Father, it, it's a costly adoption. Look at what Peter says in the next verse. In verse 18, he says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter tells us that we have been brought into a new family, but that our adoption into the divine family it has come at a profound cost. 
It hasn't come through a, a financial transaction with silver or gold or dollars or cents. It has come through the blood of Christ, which is of incalculable value. You know, something interesting happens when you begin to get a sense of how much something costs. Your attitude towards that thing begins to change. Just recently, uh, my wife and I moved out of our first apartment and into a house. And th this process was um, longer and more difficult than we thought it would be. We'd been looking since really the end of December. We'd had numerous offers that had fallen through, numerous situations that had arisen, and we had kind of reached the end of February thinking that it was just never going to happen. And then all of a sudden, we got an offer accepted right at the very beginning of March before the pandemic spread, before the world began to shut down. And, and through this whole process, we figured something has to go wrong. Something has to fall through. We're not going to get too emotionally invested in this because we've already had and lost multiple dream houses over the last few months. But in the end, in, in, in God's grace, it, it worked out. And then we started to see how much owning a home cost. The, the price of a mortgage, the cost of financial repairs, which we didn't have when we lived in an apartment and could knock on our landlord's door and ask him to fix our water faucet. And knowing the price of, of this, this home that we stepped into caused me to probably be overly cautious around some things. Every morning I would make the coffee and I wouldn't quite put the coffee pot in right so that it, it wouldn't flip the lever like it was supposed to. And the first three or so mornings that we were there, the coffee didn't go in the pot. It went all over our counter and cabinets. And that's a pretty easy fix. You just wipe it up. But it drove me crazy. Because I was thinking, you know, I know how much we're paying for this. I am not messing these cabinets up. And, and then a, a couple weeks later, I brought my, um, my pull-up bar that hangs in the doorway, and I put it in the doorway of our guest room. And without thinking, I shut the door out of habit, and I knocked the pull-up bar down, and it just gouged this chunk out of our wall. And I was so angry. Like, I have never been so angry at dropping something. Mickey had to sort of talk me off the ledge and say, Travis, we live in this house. Things are going to break. We're going to have to fix stuff. But in my head, I was thinking, this, this is costly. I want to preserve it. I want to take care of it. Probably to an unrealistic degree. Things break in houses. But owning a home is costly in a way that apartments are not. And we've been learning that. With a higher cost, there comes a higher value. When we know the cost of something, we care for it differently. Peter tells us that the cost of our salvation was the life, death, and blood of the Son of God. We should not approach something so costly with flippancy or this casual whatever attitude. He contrasts this with money. He says, you weren't saved through perishable things like silver or gold, 
Now, obviously, your, your wedding ring or your, your golden necklace is not going to expire like a carton of milk in a fridge that's not working. But I think the point is, is pretty clear. Things like money, their value fluctuates. Things like silver and gold, they lose their luster. They lose their shine. They become dull. But the blood of Christ, the price of salvation... It is something of eternal value. And for us, that should always inspire gratitude and awe and a reverent fear among us as God's people as we work out our salvation. Notice that Peter doesn't just say, you were saved by the blood of Jesus in some vague sense. He says that we were ransomed from the futile ways that we inherited from our forefathers. That that our salvation, it actually brought us out of one way of living and it brought us into another way of living. It brought us out of one family and it brought us into a new one. And so when we don't walk in holiness, when we don't walk in all of these things that, that Mark and I have talked about, in joy and in hope and in holiness and in reverent fear, when we continue to live in sin, What we say with our actions is that our old family was better. What we say with our actions is that that price that was paid for salvation, it wasn't so steep. We cheapen the work of Christ. You know, I grew up going on mission trips here in our high school ministry. And when I was going on trips, I'm not quite sure how they function now, but many of them were really labor intensive. There was a lot of building projects. It involved things like mixing concrete and and pouring foundations for churches and orphanages. And so in the packing list, there was a a consistent reminder on every trip I went on. Don't expect the clothes that you go to Costa Rica or the the Dominican Republic with. Don't expect them to make it back intact. So bring the sort of clothes that you're okay with basically ruining on a construction site. And so what I would do before I went on these trips is I would go to Walmart and I would buy a really cheap pair of Velcro walking shoes. They were like $10 and I thought it was the funniest thing in the world because I was like a 15-year-old high school sophomore wearing old man Velcro shoes. And I would take them with me on these missions trips. And I didn't treat those shoes with any particular level of care. It didn't matter if I got concrete all over them. It didn't matter if, if the rocks tore the soles off of them because they were cheap. They cost me $10. They cost me next to nothing and I treated them as though they were nothing. But how often is that how we treat our faith? How often is that how we treat our salvation as though it were something cheap and insignificant, as though it were purchased by silver and gold rather than the life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God. Baylife, this is not how it should be. We were not purchased by things that perish. We were purchased by the everlasting blood of Jesus. And the the funny thing about treating things flippantly is that pretty soon you can convince everyone else around you to do the same thing. So I didn't take care of the shoes that I would bring with me on missions trips and they would get so muddy at the work site that we would leave them in the front room of wherever we were staying. 
And on the trip, we, we would have somebody who was designated to go organize the workroom, is what we called it. And whoever was picked on any given day to organize our shoes, they, they didn't take care of my shoes. They, they threw them in the pile of mud next to everybody else's shoes. They knew that I didn't care about them, and so they didn't particularly care about them. Indifference begets indifference. And I wonder if that's not the risk that we run when we don't take our salvation seriously. When it's just a box that we check on the religion section of Facebook. When it's not something that we value or cherish or take seriously. When there is no joy, when there is no steadfast hope, when there is no holiness, when there is no reverent fear of God. It's just something that we treat like whatever. That sort of thing is not contagious. It doesn't offer the lost world any compelling reason to follow Jesus. Nobody takes care of the shoes that nobody cares about. But there's another option for us as God's people. A couple hundred years ago, there was a, a famous revival preacher named George Whitfield preached during the Great Awakening. And he was preaching in London. And many people would travel to hear Whitfield preach. He was known as being one of the greatest preachers in his day. And there's a story about a Scottish philosopher named David Hume. And if, you, if you don't know anything about David Hume, he, he was one of the most famous skeptics of his age. He's most famous for his argument against miracles and why they can't happen. And the story goes that as Whitfield was getting ready to preach in London, someone noticed David Hume, this famous skeptic on his way to sit down and listen. It was a friend of his, and so he stopped him and he said, where are you going? And Hume said, I'm going to hear George Whitfield preach. And the friend was kind of shocked. And he said, surely you don't believe all of the stuff that George Whitfield says. And he says, absolutely not. But he does. And I want to hear him. May we be such people who are so passionate about the precious gift of salvation, who are so marked with joy and hope and holiness and reverent fear, who see the unimaginable cost that was paid so that we could call out to God as Father. May we be such a people that are so marked by that, that even our lost friends look at us and the gospel we proclaim and say, I don't believe this, but you do. And I want to know more about it. I pray that's the way forward for us, Bay Life. As we call out to God, our Father, and live in reverent fear of our impartial judge. So would you pray with me in light of all that we've heard from God's word? Father, what a privilege it is to call on you as Father. But that privilege is costly. It comes at the price of the death of Christ the Son. And it calls us to live as obedient children in reverent fear.
Holy Spirit, stir these things up in our heart. Fill us with joy. Fill us with hope. Make us desire to live holy lives. and Fill us with awe and reverent fear so that we might never take for granted the weight of glory, the price of salvation. Send us into the world to love you, Father, Son, and Spirit, with all our hearts, with all our souls, with all our minds, with all our strength. We ask these things in Christ's name, and we say, Amen.